What I want to do right now is I want to read Colossians uh, 3, 1 through 17, our whole section um, that we started with when we started this series, and, um, and then pray, and then talk about today uh, the, this emerging of the new self. How does this new self come about? <clears throat> Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life, your your life now is hidden with Christ in God. And so in Christ, who is your life? Christ is your whole life. When he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So put these things to death sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have, here it is, put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, or free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word, and at times it seems so unattainable, but I I thank you that when we read it, it's true about us. It's not something that we kind of have to attain to, it's true already about us, and so I pray right now that you would give us hearts to receive this, that you would open up our hearts, you would open up our minds. I pray you would deal with us, everyone in here that you would deal with us, myself, people who, who really need, I know there are people in here that really need an extra measure of faith, more faith to believe these things that are true about them. All the lies that they grew up hearing, all the lies that they grew up hearing, maybe even in church, I pray God the truest thing about every soul in here they would grab onto is that they're loved by God. I know that's so simple help us to grasp how profound that is. I need your help. I would pray that you would anoint me. I need your help, God. In your name, amen. Amen. So we've been, like I said, in this series for a bit on identity. And what we've said, and I I, I can't say everything that we've said because it's just been a lot, but what we said... um, a summary of what we've been saying is that once you place your faith in Christ, once your faith is in Christ, you are given a new identity, a brand new identity, a new self. You see, that's the language that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 3. You get a new self. And we get that from 
verse 3, and we read it in chapter 3, for you have died and your life is now hid with Christ in God. You have died and your life, your new life now is now hid with Christ in God. In verse 10 it says this, therefore because of that, put off the old self. So take off this old self with its practices and have put on the new self, check this out, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And what I want to deal with today is how this new self that Paul is talking about, you have a new self, how does this new self emerge? How does this new self come out of your old self and you actually live in this new self? How does this new self, this new identity that you are given in Christ come to be true about you in the truest way? What we've said is the, and this is what we've been saying since the beginning, that the truest thing about you is that you are beloved of God, that you are Christ's and Christ is your life. Now, taking that, how does this new self emerge out of the ashes of the false self like a phoenix to handle the way that you look in the mirror? I mean, how does this new self affect the way you look in the mirror? How does this new self affect the way that you view sexuality and your sexuality? How does this new self change the way that you handle money and the way that you make decisions? How does this true thing about you, now that you're in Christ, become the truest thing about you? So you're in Christ. How does it become the the truest thing about you? How do you live out of this place and operate out of this place? How does this new self kind of emerge from you? I stand up here, and every week um, in this series, I have begun by saying something like this, that you are beloved of God. And I want you to understand that this is the message. This is one of the main themes in Scripture, that you are beloved of God, that God has loved you, that he has actually initiated love for you by going after you. I mean, you need to understand that. And I know that that church and Christianity lumps all these other things on top of it. I get that. I know. I've been around it for a while. But the truest thing, and the truest thing that you need to understand about yourself is that you're loved by God and actually allowing your life to be loved by God, allowing yourself to be loved, to accept and receive that love, being the truest thing about you. We started the very first sermon. I quoted Henry Nouwen from his book, Life of the Beloved, which we have, I think we have some copies downstairs. And this this is what Nouwen wrote. From the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, from that very moment, when we claim that truth and we accept that truth, when we receive what Christ has done to demonstrate his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, at that very moment that we go, yes, that truth is my truth. I am the beloved of God. This is what Nowen writes. From that very moment that you claim, yes, it's true, I am beloved of God, we are faced with the call to become who we are. See, I think this is a a lot of what we wrestle with in terms of identity, whether you're you're post-50, people still wrestle with this, or you're in your 20s, you wrestle with this. Who am I? How do I become who I really am? How do I find myself? And what Nowen writes, and actually what Paul writes in Colossians, that your real self, who you really are, is in Christ. And now your call, Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, Christian, your call now is to find out who you are. 
to dig down deep and find out who am I really? Who am I in terms of who Christ is and what he's done for me? Who am I? And you and I have this call now as a follower of Jesus to realize this new identity you've been given to become who you really are. You have this call. Now, how do you live with this understanding that the truest thing about you is Christ and not your sexuality? How do you, that's, a difficult, that's a difficult one. How do you do that? How do you live as though the truest thing about you is Christ and not your sexuality? Not matter, no matter what your sexual desire is or how conflicted you are or how conflicted you have been, how is the truest and most real way to live as a follower of Jesus not defined by sexuality but by Jesus? And how you can rest in that? How do you live as though the truest thing about you is Christ and not your job? No matter how much time your job demands of your life. No matter how mundane or exciting your job is. No matter how much money you make or you don't make. How are you defined first by being beloved of God first? Before, you, before your job. How do you live as though the truest thing about you is Christ and not your past? No matter how many mistakes you've made or how your old mistakes might haunt you. How do you become defined by Christ's love and Christ's forgiveness? See, here's the deal. You guys, we all have jobs, okay? Well, most of us have jobs. And we place our faith in Jesus. Sunday morning, we come in, we place our faith in Christ. We wake up Monday morning, and we go right back to our ad agency. We go back to our startup company. We go back to our financial firm. And we wake up Monday morning, and we still have jobs. I mean, some of us might be called out of our jobs. I understand that. There's definitely room for the Holy Spirit to call you out of your job. But most of us, we all know tomorrow morning, we're going to wake up and go right back to work. We have jobs, and we have very demanding jobs. And some of you are very good at what you do, and your job consumes you. And it seems you are more concerned about your job than you are about your faith in Christ. You think more about your job than you ever think about being a disciple and a follower of Jesus. And to be honest, this is my struggle as well. I know I work in the church. You're like, well, how's that work? I don't know. It's really weird. But it happens with me as well. It happens with me as well. So sermon topics like this, maybe over the last five, six, seven weeks, when we've been dealing with these sermon topics, you, you might even flirt with the idea of just quitting your job for a simpler life. Now, how do we pull it all off? How do I, how do I really embrace who I am in Christ, but still go to my job and work 50, 60, 70 hours a week? How do I do that? And something deep within us, I know that there's something deep within you that says, this has to work. I must be able to find this work-life balance where I will not become my job. I will be a faithful, faithful to my job, and I will be faithful as a disciple of Christ. But how am I going to do that? How do I do that? See, all of this these issues of identity, job, they all come back to who you are. They all come back to identity. See, when you find who you are in Christ, and I don't, I don't mean to oversimplify this, it's not easy. Believe me, it's not easy. Once you find who you are in Christ, you're not going to look for your identity in your job. Or there might be a temptation to do that, but you'll know who you truly are in Christ. And you're not going to look for it in your family and their approval of you or trying to raise your kids to be perfect, protected little citizens and to make you look awesome as an awesome parent. You're not going to look for your identity in your sexuality. 
You're not going to look for your identity in what you have or what you can produce. See, this is what it means to be truly free. How do you live a life that's truly free? That's like, I'm not that, not this. I'm truly free in Christ. I'm completely free. Isn't that the goal? To be absolutely free. Now, how do we get there? How does this new self emerge secure enough in God to go through our life knowing who we are? Well, again, I'm not, I'm not telling you this because I've done this. I'm telling you this because I'm doing this. I'm still trying to learn what this looks like. The first thing Paul says in Colossians 3.10, he says this in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, when you put on the new self, he says, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. When you see that, this new self is being renewed in knowledge. This new self, you can't just go, okay, it's a new self, it's new about me, but it's also renewed in you by knowledge. There's something that you have to know that you have to get you have to understand in order for this to be true about you. There's something that you have to know. There's something that has to be renewing your mind, which is another way of saying repentance or changing your mind. There has to be a reorientation of perspective for you to get this. Paul says it comes through a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Okay, so what things do you have to know to get this new self? What things do you have to know to realize this new self? I think the first one is rather counterintuitive. The first one is this, dependency. You and I must learn dependency. That's a bit counterintuitive. You're like, wait, I thought I'm supposed to be free. No, you have to be dependent. You are, listen, you are a created being dependent upon God. This is how Paul writes and starts Colossians. He starts it like this. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He holds everything together. So you know where most identity issues come from? I'm not, I'm not a researcher or a psychologist, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I meet with a lot of people. And this is where a lot of identity issues stem from. Identity issues stem from trying to be independent of the fact that you are completely dependent on God. Identity issues happen when you try to be independent of the fact that you are completely dependent upon God. Colossians 3.10 says that that the image of God is being renewed in you. Listen, you're stopping the renewal process when you try to be independent. God is renewing his spirit. He's renewing his image in you. You were created in his image, and now that you're saved, God is renewing that image in you. But when you act as you're in, like you're independent, you kind of stop that process from happening altogether. You think that finding a self means independence, being your own man, or finding your own way. And though there's a sense of that, and some of that might be true, we kind of overcorrect and leave out God. We're like, I've got to be my own person. Whoop! And then we do this. And we're, we're all the way over here. We're like, but God doesn't matter. I'm not dependent on God. I'm not dependent on God for anything. 
I'm a completely independent man. I blaze my own trail. I do my own thing. And that's why a lot of us, this new identity can never fully be realized. That's why this true self cannot completely be put on. You won't allow the creator to renew his image in you, the creation. You have it. You have this new identity, but it remains dormant. And this is why. Because you're not being who you really, really, really are. You know how I said who you really are? This is who you really, really, really are. Let me show you from Miroslav Volf's book. We have it downstairs, free of charge. I have been just wrecked, so wrecked by this book. Read it if you dare. And read the whole thing. Don't just give up, chapter one, okay? Read the whole thing if you dare. And read it slow. Don't just read to say you read it. Read to read it. And you will be destroyed. This is what he says in his book. Assertion of independence, pride of achievement, sense of entitlement, an absolute right to dispose with our goods. These are the ways in which we live in contradiction to who we actually are in relation to God. See, you will never begin to find an identity until you surrender to the fact that you are a dependent being. He goes on, to live in sync with who you truly are means to recognize that we are dependent on God for our very breath. You want to know where to start? If this is, if, if you're just, just coming into this series, like, where do I start with this whole identity thing? Start here. Start with recognizing that you're a dependent being. Start with recognizing that you're a dependent being. Now, let me, once again, I don't know why I do this, but let me be a little bit transparent here. Again, this is the simplest point I think I've ever made in any sermon. I mean, I just basically said, you were created by God and you're dependent on him. I mean, how much more simple does it get than that, okay? This is the simplest point I've ever made in a sermon, but this is the hardest point I've ever had to make. And I, I literally, hours, hours, maybe five, maybe more than that, staring at my computer trying to work out this point. Staring, not knowing why is this point so hard to get across, and then it finally came to me because this is the part I struggle with the most. See, I think, and I'm just gonna talk about me here, okay? I think my wife and my marriage is mine. I think it's mine. It's my marriage, that's my wife, and that sort of thinking keeps me from seeking God and being dependent on him for my romantic life. I think I could do this. I don't need God to be romantic. I could do it on my own. I won my wife, I can take care of my wife. I can do this on my own. I don't come under God's ways and his ethics for marriage the way he said it would work. And so I'm independent of God. I see my money and my time as mine. It's my money and my time. And this sort of thinking keeps me from being dependent on God and free from anxiety. Anyone here suffer from anxiety? You don't raise your hand. I can just see it on your face right now. <laughs> keeps me from being, from being anxious and also keeps me from being full of generosity. But I think it's mine. It's all mine. It's my time and my money. I think it's my job and my ministry and my life is mine. You are a dependent being. I am a dependent being. Listen, you don't have an independent romantic life where you make up rules as you go. Some of you guys do. 
you're like, yeah, that might, I might believe that, but I'm not going to do it right now, okay? You don't have an independent romantic life. You don't have an independent, you don't have independent money. You're like, uh-huh, my parents left me a lot of money. You're not entitled to that money. It's not yours. The money that you work for really hard is not really yours. You don't have an independent life. You don't have an independent identity. Humanity, human identity, links directly to God, the creation to its creator. Your identity, if you're really going to start discovering, who am I? You must start with the fact that you are a dependent being on your creator. You must start there. Even our acts of virtue are acts of dependence on God. Even when you want to act out in, virtu- in virtuous ways, even when you want to love, even when you want to forgive, you only do that as a dependent person. Listen, we love because God has first loved us. We are dependent on God's love if we're ever going to love rightly, ever. If we're ever going to love our enemies. If we're ever going to be humble enough to love everyone the same and not love people for what they can give us in return. The only way to do that is understanding God's love for us. So we're dependent on God's love for us to truly love people. We're dependent on God's forgiveness to forgive people. We just read it. Colossians 3 says, we are forgiven and we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. So we're dependent on Christ's forgiveness in order to forgive. So we're to forgive as completely, as fully as Christ has forgiven us. How's that? While we were yet sinners, while we were unrepentant. Even though we didn't seek after it, Christ still went to the cross and enacted our forgiveness. Like, I'm not going to forgive them until they say sorry. Is that what God did with you? Did God, like, I'm not going to die on the cross until they say sorry. That's it. Nope. Or did he say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, the, the ethics of, of the kingdom of God is so high and lofty, unless you understand what's been done for you, you can never do it, ever. So you must, you must be dependent being on, God, I need you to love me because it's really hard to love this person that I live with. I hope that's not the case, but maybe. Or that I work with, or that I'm neighbors with, or that I live in the same city with. It's so hard to love this person. God, show me your love again. Renew that love within me again. Show me how I'm such a rebel and how, how I'm so unlovable that you love me anyways. Show me that. Make me dependent upon that before I go love someone else. Show me again how you've forgiven me while I was yet a sinner, while I still continue to sin. Show me again how you've forgiven me so I can forgive this person who's done me so much harm. And not just forgiveness for the sake of like, I just want to feel better about myself. You notice how a lot of forgiveness is so self-centered? Like, I want to forgive you so I feel better. I need to release you so this burden's not on me. Well, that's not what, God doesn't go, I need to forgive you so I feel better about myself. The way that God forgives is for our benefit, okay? So whenever you forgive someone, it's for their benefit. It's that, that, that they would return to love, that they would see the love of Christ and your love, and they would be loved. But you can't do that unless you understand your dependence upon God to forgive and to love. We are generous because God has been so generous to us. We are patient because God has been so patient with us. God is not asking you to generate love or generate forgiveness. He's not saying, okay, this is what I need you to do now. I need you to generate love. I need you to look around people and just find something to love about them and just love them. Find something to love. Their eyes, their hair. Love something. Generate. Find out some way to love them and love them. 
That's not what God asks us to do. It doesn't come out of nowhere, out of thin air, out of some overwhelming emotion. You cannot love, serve, forgive your enemies, let alone your roommates, until you have become so dependent and aware of your need for God's love and God's forgiveness. In Luke chapter 7, in Luke 7 verse 36, um, there's this story where Jesus is invited over to a Pharisee's house to eat. And when they ate in those days, they didn't have like tables like we have tables. They lounged on the, on the ground. And they would lounge and linger for a very long time over a meal. In Luke chapter 7, verse 36, it says that one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house. And he took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, who was a harlot, when she learned that it was Jesus that was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She was just so overwhelmed by the story and the compassion and the love that, she's, that, that has preceded Jesus and the forgiveness and the things that she's gathered and heard from people about who Jesus was, that she stood right behind him as Jesus would be lounging with his feet behind him. She stood behind Jesus, weeping to where te- tears were dripping off her face. Have you seen that happen? Or has that ever happened to you? Where you're like, it wasn't just tears. You know it's not too, all right? I mean, they were just, I mean, just everything starts pouring out and she's weeping and crying and it's landing on Jesus' feet. And it says, that she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she knelt down and she wiped them off with the tears with her hair. And she kissed his feet and then poured out this ointment on his feet. Now, in the Pharisee, I mean, I can't even believe this. I mean, this, by the way, you're not Jesus in the story, I'm just saying. You're like, oh, I'm so Jesus in the story. No, you're the Pharisee in the story, okay? <laughs> Normally, we're the Pharisees in the story, okay? So we're like, like oh my gosh. Who invited this woman? When they saw this, someone said to himself, which is a really important clue in the, in the story. Someone said to himself, I just said it in my head. I was hoping someone can read it. No? Okay. Anyway, if this man, I, if, I, if I had internal dialogue, this is what it would be. I, I can't talk with my mouth closed, so I'm just going to have to say it. If this man were a prophet, okay, this guy's thinking this. He would have known who, who this was and what sort of woman this was who was actually touching him for she is a sinner. Internal dialogue, like, oh my gosh, this woman, I've seen around town. Everybody knows who this chick is. And if Jesus, if he, this guy was a real prophet, he's probably looking at Jesus. If you were a real prophet, you would know who this woman was, okay? And then Jesus answering, <laughs> Jesus answers him, okay? So he's like, if you were a prophet, you would know who this woman was. He's like, I hear you, so I win. <laughs> And then Jesus answering him, because he is a prophet, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answers, say it, teacher. Then he tells a parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. Well, one owed him 500 denarii, which would have been two years, about two years of, of work, and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. Normally guests would wash the feet or the host would wash the feet of guests. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. You didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, and we all know that, are forgiven. For she loved much. He who is for, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, just in case you guys misunderstood this parable, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's not your love has saved you. It's your faith has saved you. And what has saved this woman And the generosity poured on her life by Jesus, her response to him is love back to him. That was the whole point of the parable. He who has been forgiven much loves much. This woman has been forgiven of so much. But here's the weird part of the story. Jesus asked, he who has been forgiven little loves little. That was rhetorical. I mean, because who has really been forgiven of little? If you have been redeemed by Jesus, you have been ripped from the depths of darkness and hell and spiritual blindness. And the psalmist says in Psalm 40, he has brought me up out of the miry pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock. See, the person that feels that they have been forgiven little is under a certain deception. If you're in here and you're like, well, I've I've been forgiven a little bit, you're lying to yourself. You have been forgiven of so much. And I think there's this great danger for the follower of Jesus to believe that they have been forgiven little. You have been forgiven much. You have to realize and understand the depth of love that God has for you before you would ever love him back or other people. You must understand what Christ has done for you. You must be dependent upon that love and come to know that love. If you find yourself this morning loveless, hard to love people, don't, don't just say, I'm going to love people more this week. No. Realize how much Christ loves you. Realize of what you've been forgiven. How you don't deserve what you have. Realize that, and that causes our hearts to be changed. That is why I think not only dependence brings about this true self, but also understanding that we're beloved. And I've said this, I think, every single Sunday. And I, I'm going to say it until the series is over and beyond that. See, many of us, our identity frameworks give us labels. The labels that our identity framework, and this, are, this is just our culture, and I understand that. Our identity framework gives us labels like smart, uneducated, sick, attractive, fit, fat, beautiful, ugly, straight, lesbian, bisexual. All of these are single items. Some of us are complex competing desires Some of these things are unchangeable. You'll never be able to change them. And some of these are, some of these are very changeable. Some of these change in a moment. Some of these change whether you ate breakfast or not. Some of them are single items. Some of them are few. But what if beloved were the thing that we were, that was the most true about us? What if being beloved of God, it was the most true, it was the truest thing about us? It wasn't like, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this. It was like, I'm beloved and then I'm a mixture of all the rest. But what's over me, bigger than anything else, is beloved. 
I'm beloved of God. I'm beloved of God, the God of the universe, the God who made you and redeemed you and redeemed me, who went after you to restore his image that he created you in. See, then your identity would be secure. Regardless of what other labels true or kind of true about you, the truest thing about you would be that you're loved by God. And since we don't know who we are right down to the core, what we do now is we settle for what Henry Nouwen calls attractive solutions. See, if you don't realize that you're first and foremost beloved of God and you haven't claimed that is true about you, and you haven't been redeemed and given this new identity, you're going to look for attractive solutions. In one of many self-aware moments in Nowen's writing, he says, I kept running around in large or small circles, always looking for someone or something able to convince me of my belovedness. We go to all these identity structures like, convince me that I'm worth something. Convince me that I'm worth this. Convince me that I'm worth that. Convince me of my belovedness. Now instead of this being a follower of Jesus, which means I guarantee you all of us have said the same thing, whether you're redeemed or not redeemed. And what Nowen is saying, what we've been saying this whole entire time on, in this series is that everyone is searching for meaning. Everyone is searching for value. We are all searching high and low for something or someone to convince us of, a, of our value, of our worth, of our belovedness. But the way that we come to realize the love of God, I believe, is by allowing ourselves to be loved by God, by allowing that love to come in, by surrendering to this love. C.S. Lewis, in his last chapter in Mere Christianity called The New Man, you have to read this book. And this last chapter, which I read, I think I read this like once a month. This last chapter, he says that to become this new, new self, this new person, means losing what we now call ourselves. He says, out of ourselves and into Christ we must go. Now, there's some of you that are like, well, if I lose myself in Christ, won't I lose my sense of self? Won't I lose my personality? Won't I lose who I am, my individuality? I don't want to lose what makes me, me. And he goes, okay, that, I understand that question. And then he offers it a very, he says, a very imperfect illustration. His illustration's got to be really good if this is imperfect, okay? He says, it's like this. We're all, imagine a whole civilization are creatures in the dark. They've always lived in the dark. And you come along and you try to explain what light is like. He says, you might tell them that if they come into the light, that same light will fall on all of them. And they will all begin to reflect this light and thus become what we call visible. He says what they might say is something like this. They might be inclined to think that since that same light is falling on all of them, they're all reflecting this in the, in the same way. They're all reflecting this light in the same way and reacting towards this light in the same way. They'll all look alike. Like if the same light falls on all of us, won't we all look the same? However, he writes, indeed the light will in fact bring out how different they all are. This is what he's saying. What happens in us is that once the same light falls on all of us, it's illuminated in us, we become who we really are. And this is how he closes. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we will become. Some of you guys are like, but I'll lose my individuality. No, no, actually, you become more you than you ever have been. 
Because what happens is when Christ comes in, he makes us more alive, more us. Sin distorts and destroys. This is what was lost in the fall. In, in, in Genesis, what happens is we were fully us, and then sin comes in and distorts it all. And what Christ comes back and does is restores it all. He says, out of the way and let him take us over. The more fully ourselves we will become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Until you have given yourself to him, you will not have a real self. At last, in Christ, the human being can be what God has intended them to be. You can be what God has created you to be. But you must, you must remember that you are dependent. So once you're in Christ and you try to start picking up your life again, you're like, I'm independent. I'm going to do what I want to do. You're, you're dependent. And so that should drive you to the, to the scriptures. That should drive you to the character of God. Then how do I react? How do I live? Not only that, but you're beloved. And you have to remember that most important thing about you. Especially as you're in Christ, you have to understand that you're beloved of God. And lastly, you have to surrender. You must surrender your life to this. And then at the end, when we see this happen, it says in Colossians 3, Paul says, Here, there is no no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ becomes the truest thing about us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your beautiful scriptures. And I pray, God, that we, you would find um, a, a church here that's open and repentant before you that says that, and Lord, I am, I, I surrender I know in my own heart, I know that for many of us in this room, we are independent people with our independent lives, and we are independent in the way that we spend money, in the way that we raise our kids and relate to, the, to, to, to people and are in relationships. We're independent of you, and Lord, we want to repent of that and become dependent upon you. I pray if... Lord, I really believe that you're, you're calling people to turn to you, to trust in Christ for their salvation, to trust, trust in Christ, to redeem them, to restore them. And the only way this happens, God, the only way this is possible is because you've died in our place. You've taken our sin upon the cross. We turn to that cross now in communion. We thank you that you've given your blood and your body to redeem us. And we worship you. I pray that in this room there would be found
People like the, that woman who was at your feet. So grateful for redemption. So grateful for the cross. So grateful for the love. Make us grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.